The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. It is time for Break the Business, where we empower indie creators and have some fun along the way. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. And it is a pleasure to be joined by my co-host this week, Zach Sloan. How's it going, Zach? What's up, Ryan? I am doing well up out here in a you know slightly overcast Colorado, which is fine because you're in hot Miami. It is hot. I don't like this time of year. This is the and it's it's the beginning of just what becomes a very pl- unpleasant four months in Miami. And I know, you know, I'm, I'm getting, uh, you know, people playing little tiny violins for me throughout <laughs> across the country, throughout this great nation of ours, because for eight months out of the year, Miami is a spectacular place to live. But May, June, July, August, it is a humidity soaked mercury rising hellscape from which uh, we do not recover until like the new school year starts and it's brutal, but we're going to bear with it. And, you know, un- unlike my air conditioner, we're going to handle it just fine. <laughs> and I'm feeling pretty cool right now because I- I'm hanging out with you, Zach. And I know this is a silly thing to say, but the music that was playing before we came on, that uh, that pre-show music, the-, the public domain YouTube music, it slaps this week. Hey, that was pretty dope. Uh, I was just sort of grooving to it. I was like, I could envision myself like just having this on while I'm doing things. That was really, that was actually really cool. We were bopping to the public domain music. Yeah. I, I saw you in the window. I saw Lauren, our producer, in the window. We were all digging on that music hard. And this is my favorite time of year for music. I'm doing nothing but digging on music lately mm-hmm. because my favorite day of the year happened on Saturday. I talked about this this last week, and now it's uh, finally came to uh existence eurovision happened on saturday i watched it it was exquisite so many great songs banger after banger did you did you happen to catch any of this zach i know a lot of the americans still aren't into it yet i am a very much aware of you of eurovision i have yet to watch it all right so uh, yeah go ahead go ahead i'm gonna need, i'm gonna need the hard sell though because oh. You know, just just hit me up. Like, tell tell me why I should why, why I should care. I'm ready for this, man, because I gave our dear friend Katie Zaccardi last week this same speech, and I'm telling you, like America is sleeping on Eurovision. This is a tremendous spectacle. If you like music, if you like anything competitive, if you like ostentatious costumes and just over the top theatrics. Eurovision's got it all. It is just an exquisite production start to finish. And unlike a lot of kind of these productions where, oh, I don't really want to watch it because it's going to be like one song and then like 20 minutes of speeches and then 30 Mm. minutes of commercials and then another song, you know, that kind of flow, that's not Eurovision. Eurovision is just 26 songs. Each country gives you one back to back to back to back to back. No interruptions, just the music. And it is absolutely fantastic. See now that sounds that sounds interesting to me because uh, the idea in my head it was always more of a, like had an award show feel which sounds like this is just a concert conducted by many different acts it is which it, sounds more fun and if you're a fan of multi genres like if you want to sort of 
see everything. Like, that's what Eurovision gives you. You get a band like Iceland, which comes out with, like, 360-degree circle keytars and, pay, and plays, like, just kooky new wave stuff. And then right up next to them is Finland that gives you just the craziest death metal. And then Cyprus leads the show off with, like, a Lady Gaga-style pop song. You get it all. And every single song was amazing, except for the United Kingdom. They did not bring it this year. Um, no hate to the U.K., but I, I believe they were the first country in, like, 10 years to not get a single point from any of the country judges or any of the voters on Eurovision. Um, they got a complete goose egg, which I didn't even know was mathematically feasible, and I, I don't understand why the UK is bad at Eurovision. Like, how is it that a country that brings us the Beatles and is just the, the cradle of so much great right. art in this area can't churn out a competitive Eurovision entry? I'll never understand. You got to get into this, Zach. You, you and I, we're watching this next year. I'm gonna you know, maybe put it maybe, on your calendar. It's is so there great. a like fantasy football version of Eurovision where we can like draft team or draft countries and? You know, go go at it in a setting like that. I, I don't know, but there needs to be. Zach, that is a marvelous idea. I want to do this. I want to, like, so, like, you know, there's 26 countries that compete. You get together with, you know, a, a dozen or so people. We each get to, you get to each adopt, like, two or three countries. Or you do it like a uh -huh. draft, right? Like, fantasy football yep. is, always is a draft. And you draft the I, I want to do this. That sounds so, fantastic. That is what I want to do. Uh, having never, and I don't think it matters that I've never seen it before. I will pick countries at random that sound cool. Like my first pick actually would have been Finland because I know that they they bring like death metal. Yes, they like, do. They, oh, they make American yes, they metal look do. just like kind of quiet. Um, <laughs> God, know. Finland was incredible. They were all incredible. Uh, yes, I'm into this idea, Zach. You've you've taken my favorite thing in music and have made it a thousand times better. Thank you. Chef's kiss. Mwah. Love it. Well, next year, everybody can tune in for the Break the Business Eurovision Fantasy fantasy Music Challenge or whatever you want to call yes. it. You, you wordsmith that. but we'll make No, I'm going to do it just like that. We'll, we'll create imaging for it. The Eurovision Fantasy something or another. It'll be just... <laughs> and we'll get all the Break the Business people into it. Oh, I got it. Perfect. That's wonderful. Thank you. I love it. I mean, and, and as if I wasn't in a good enough mood already, our guests coming up in the next segment, excited to talk to uh, these two gentlemen, Arabian Prince and Paul Hershenson. Uh, Arabian Prince, you might know him as the uh, one of the founding members of NWA, Paul Hershenson, a you know really prominent software developer and entrepreneur. They have come together to co-found Incubate Next, which is a social impact technology incubator focused on underserved entrepreneurs and communities. Can't wait to hear, hear their story. And certainly Arabian Prince with his... Uh, history with NWA, like I'm sure he's got some great advice for artists about how to avoid bad deals in music, and I hope we can get some of that info out of him. You got a lot to yeah. look forward to with that. I'm excited to talk to them both. Every time I come on as a co-host, I just get to talk to cooler and cooler people. Like I, I've talked, I've spoken with Ariel. I started off my first episode with Ariel Hyatt, and now I get to chat with a founding member of NWA. That's I don't know how wild. you keep drawing the killer guests, man. This is this is fortuitous. Well, you know what it is is. I tell them Zach Sloan's coming on this week, <laughs> and they're like, all right, you need to move me to that episode. I got to hang with Zach. And so now here they are. Um, I, I just like to think that my best ability is availability. So whenever you're <laughs> like, would you, would you like to host? I'm like, yes, I would. <laughs> that is a valuable characteristic, and uh, we very much appreciate having you. I got to tell you, Zach, the, the other reason why I bring up Eurovision is because I, I think a lot about what allows Eurovision to thrive in this 
amazing creative culture that exists throughout Europe and all these different genres that flourish there and how in a lot of ways, though not perfect, a lot of European countries really do a good job of incubating and, you know, the next generation of great independent musicians. There's a lot of policies and uh, infrastructure there to help these creators thrive. And it reminds me of what we have here in the United States and an article that Legion wrote in Every recently that talks about the American safety net and the extent to which it is not as hospitable as it could be to cultivating independent creators in the same way that we see in Europe. And um, I'll I'll tell you this, Zach, uh, something that I want to kind of bring up here is a little confession, Um, something that I think this podcast needs to get better at is for five years since I've been hosting this show, Zach, I've often tried to speak about policies that I think would make things better for indie artists. And because my background is in copyright law, I often try to talk to artists about copyright legislation that's coming up. I talked a lot about the Music Modernization Act on this show. I talked a lot about the Case Act on this show. These were uh, various copyright acts that came out because I said these were going to help indie musicians. And I think I've erred in that respect because, yes, copyright laws do help indie musicians on the margins. But we're talking about little pennies. But when we think about policies that would actually move the needle for indie musicians and indie creators of all stripes, we need to talk about safety net type policies, not copyright, which is important, but the real stuff that moves the needle, like health care, social welfare policies, um, you know, making taxation better for independent contractors, creating universal basic income, universal creator income, so that we have a safety net and a foundation for creative workers to thrive. Because as this article talks about, Zach, and we can get into it, but first I want to get some of your initial thoughts on this subject, is because our country is not an easy place to be an independent contractor, because of all the things that we can talk about here, it makes it an inherently difficult place to be an independent creator. And thus, all the art around us suffers. Think of all the great indie creators out there who aren't able to flourish as much as they could in this country because we don't have a legal structure that supports them, and so they have to go find a 9-to-5 job. That's not, that's not the kind of creator economy that we should be having. Well, I mean, what we're getting at is the heart of—and don't get me wrong, I love my day job. I'm, I'm an elementary school teacher by day now, but for a couple of years, I was a musician full-time. And the thing that my wife and I really had to look at and— say is can I, can we afford health insurance on my musician in Colorado income and the the answer was barely and if we wanted to have children no and so a huge part of the reason that I left my full-time music uh, life and went back to the nine to five is exactly what we're talking about is the health insurance just becomes crippling at some point I don't know if I'm you know well versed enough in universal basic in- income to make a you know, a grand statement there, but I can tell you, I have made the decision based for my career based on the health insurance problem. And that's to me of the things that Lee Jin brings up in this article. um, That's the biggest one is the fact that there are a lot of things that are necessary to live in American society and to survive in American society that are inexorably tied to nine to five employment in a way that they're not in other countries, in other countries, You know, in a lot of uh, Western countries, healthcare is a right. Healthcare is something that everybody has. It is tied to existence and citizenship, not to employment. And so, if you're an independent creator, you can feel more freedom to go out and create 
because you know that you won't lose your health care in the process. In America, we largely tie health care to employment. And so we end up with a lot of folks like you, Zach, who find it more difficult to make a go of full-time indie creation because you can't do that unless you can solve the healthcare problem, unless you can find a level of success to be able to buy your own private health insurance on the open market. And even with uh, some of the government programs that exist in the Affordable Care Act, which try to narrow that gap a little bit, from what you're telling me, especially if you have a kid or a larger family, there's still not enough to bridge the gap there. Oh, not even. And, you know, another thing that you pointed out there was to help make uh, the tax structure better for for contractors, right? And especially when we're talking about, like, independent contractors and things like that. Uh, for some of the listeners who don't know, I also have an employment law background. Most of my legal experience is in uh, child abuse. Uh, that sounds terrible when you put it that way. But uh, I also spent some time we got in what you employment mean, law. Right. Yeah, I, yeah, I know. It's uh, – <laughs> But I also spent time in in employment law, and a lot of things that – a lot of issues that I would deal with were can somebody be classified as an independent contractor? Because if so, it's really, really beneficial for the businesses, but it also can be really, really problematic for the individual, right? Because they lose those those things that employees want and need, and if if you want to be an indie artist, it's a must-have to have health insurance and things like that, so – Uh, I think you've brought up a couple of very interesting points, Ryan. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up this idea of being an independent contractor because uh, another thing that Legion brings up in the article, which is about the tax treatment of independent contractors. So if you are an independent contractor musician, unless you have an accountant who can do some creative stuff like setting up an S-corp for you and having some of your income be W-2 income and all that, for the most part, you are employing yourself as a self-employed musician, which means you're paying both halves of your payroll taxes. And so you are effectively paying a higher tax rate for being an independent Mm -hmm. contractor musician than you would as a nine to five worker. That's just another situation where intentionally or not, the American legal structure is making it inhospitable to be an indie creator. Uh, Legion had a great quote from this article that I think just summarizes the whole kind of issue for indie creators because she's really brilliant. And of course she can say in a hundred words, which takes me a thousand, but this is from the article Specifically, policies around employment and social welfare make life precarious for creators in the United States, in contrast to the conditions creators and freelance workers experience in other high-GDP nations. With no fixed paycheck coming in every month and a career that hinges on ever-changing algorithms and viral trends, becoming a full-time creator means foregoing safety for the ability to pursue your dream. And so when you talk about not having the health and you know, not having guaranteed health insurance. Uh, you know, having disadvantageous tax structures, uh, not having a significant retirement safety net for all citizens, um, and even not having some of the stuff they have in countries like France, which not only have a lot of this basic safety net stuff, but also actively incentivize creative work with government programs, with grants, with uh, government programs that help promote your music out into the world, and, uh, you know, universal creative income uh, uh, programs. This stuff is really critical, and I think as a program, if we're not fighting for these things and not advocating for these things in the same breath that we advocate for things like, oh, the Music Modernization Act, that's going to help copyright you know, artists get a few extra pennies, or the Copyright Royalty Board is going to negotiate slightly higher royalty rates uh, for indie creators. If we're not advocating for the former as much as we're advocating for the latter, and if not more so, then I feel like we're not doing what we should be doing on this program. Oh, absolutely, and I think it's very easy. You know, in my with my legal 
you know, my l- much less legal expertise than you in, in entertainment law, it's fun to talk about the big sexy topics, right? But these nitty gritty nuts and bolts things are what make the industry viable for some and not the others. And so I, th- I think this article is one is exceptional. And when I first read it, it was something that I was excited, kind of embarrassed. I'd never really thought about because it was hitting on a lot of the issues that drove me out of the industry. Yeah, and and I think ultimately the the country as a whole suffers. I just think of how many how many artists are we missing out on, and how much great work are we missing out on because these these creators out there don't have a don't have a uh, uh, you know, a foundation that they can build off of and feel a, a, a safety net to make creation a low-risk activity. And until that gets addressed, I feel like creativity in this country is either the province of the wealthy, you know, you know, and certainly we have no shortage of music stars out there who are the children of millionaires. And there's a reason right. for that because they have that that foundation. Or it's often the activity of the very, very poor who just don't have any other opportunities. And so they might as well go for this because they don't have, you know, there's no opportunity cost for something else because we do. Mm-hmm. Ironically, this country does such a poor job taking care of people that for the very, very poor music, you know, the lottery ticket that is being an indie creator might be your best option. And, you know, we need to make it something that works for everybody. Oh, absolutely. And I think something that really stuck out from that quote that you read about was being at the whim of the algorithm. Right. Mm-hmm. How many YouTube, like indie indie YouTube artists, have I or star or you know, semi quasi stars or whatever, however you want to say it, have done well, and then all of a sudden something changes, and then they're just gone. Mm-hmm. And these are people who oftentimes, you know, may have quit their jobs. I was lucky because I relied on uh, live shows. You know, I, I wasn't subject to the algorithm, but I would have been I would have been hosed come COVID. And having some some other ways to help these indie artists be safe and secure through the ups and down that is ups and downs that is a music career uh, is essential. And I think if we if we really want to take the arts seriously in America, we need to address these things. Without a doubt. Before we bring on uh, Arabian Prince and Paul Hershenson from Incubate Next, I'm so excited to talk to these guys because I bet they have a lot of perspective on this very topic considering how long they've been in the industry. Uh, I did see this article in Billboard that caught my eye. Zach, do you remember... I mean, I'm sure you do. I mean, this, this this band was just ubiquitous for all of us. A band in, like, the 2000s called The Calling. Oh, you mean one of the 70 bands in the 2000s that started with the word the? Yes, I remember them. <laughs> um, yeah, they had the song, Wherever You Will Go. We, you know, I, 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 it, was pro- it was probably perpetually on everybody's iPod. It was probably pre-downloaded on your iPods when you bought it because of how... <laughs> How everywhere it was. I my only my only memory of the calling was I saw them live once at the Y100 Jingle Ball in Miami. I must have been like a freshman in high school or something. And the calling uh, had let off the show as one of those shows where like a bunch of different artists like that were popular with radio, you know, in top forty radio, all came to town at the same time and played in some basketball arena. And the calling let off the show. And I don't think they were happy that they got the opening gig, right? Like that right, they, right. Yeah, somebody told the calling, look, the calling, you're good, but you're not Shakira good, Pink good, Jewel good. So you got it. You have to open. And I don't think they like that very much because all I remember was they got up on stage, played three songs, and then just completely trashed this like beautiful Christmas theme set that they had on the stage. Like there was this big, beautiful, giant snowman and candy canes, and they just freaking laid waste to all of it as any you know, a self-respecting hard rock band should. 
But it just, yeah, that's I mean, that's the only thing I think of when I think of the calling, other than wherever you will go. But the reason why they're back in my mind now and back in America's consciousness now is this story in Billboard that was basically just a where are they now with the calling. And of course, uh-huh. I'm going to click that because I'm like, I would like to know where the calling is now. And the story is actually a pretty good cautionary tale for artists. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's worth mentioning that Alex Band, the lead singer of The Calling, has been through some things lately. It's pretty wild. He, uh, I believe he had a Parkinson's diagnosis, if I have that right, and he was kidnapped at some point, like after a, a gig or something. So uh, dudes lived, and but the, the piece of the article that I thought was you know, particularly intriguing to the work I do in entertainment law was that he's uh, had some, over the years, had some copyright disputes with his bandmate, because really the calling, I didn't know this, is actually just two people, and the rest of the band was huh. just session musicians. Yeah, I didn't know that. But basically, the two members of The Calling have been spending the better part of two decades fighting over the ownership of the band's name. And that got me back to a piece of advice I'm always imparting to indie creators who collaborate on anything, whether you are making a band together, whether you're making YouTube videos together. If you're doing anything together and there is a name involved, you need to have a, you know, what, would, what we call in music a band agreement, but some kind of agreement that you have between those two collaborators. And among the things that are going to be addressed in that agreement, in addition to uh, how the money is going to be split, how are decisions made, how many votes does everybody have, a big one is who owns the name and who gets to take the name when uh, everything is over. And is, you know, do, do neither of you take the name? Does one of you take the name? How is that? Do both of you get the name? Because uh, if, if you don't figure out those things on the early side, you end up with what the calling has now, which is just a big mess over you know, trying to figure out who owns this very valuable name and who can use it at concerts. It's, and, um, and of course, like the entertainment law nerd in me uh, thinks that's the most fascinating thing about this story, right? Not the fact that he was kidnapped, but you know, this right. like, nerdy piece of trademark law. But I mean, it was, it's an important cautionary tale for artists. I'm, I'm always trying to get artists who collaborate with others to do band agreements, to agree on things at the beginning while things are still good between you and your bandmate, while things are still pleasant, before money gets involved and complicates everything. Agree on the things now so that you don't fight over them later when the stakes get higher. Well, and you also don't want to get yourself backed into a corner. Uh, I remember reading... Uh, Slash's autobiography, and he talked about how Axl Rose eventually got the name to Guns N' Roses, and it was he walked into the room before the show in, in an arena and said, I want the name to Guns N' Roses, you guys sign this right now or I'm not going on stage and there's going to be a riot. And so, Whoa. I mean, now this is according to, you know, this is Slash's side of the tale, uh, but I've heard it repeated several times, and yeah, and so they, they're like, okay, I guess it's not our na- band name anymore, and that's how Axel then goes on to spend 74 years making Chinese dem- democracy, but that's not really <laughs> what we're going to talk about. What we're talking about is, is that I, I tend to agree that have those things in – not tend to agree. I completely agree. Have those things figured out ahead of time just because it makes life so much easier on the back end just if there's a question of, of who owns what or who can do what with what. Yeah, and whenever I've drafted a band agreement for bands, that's always – that's usually section one of the agreement. It's one of the first things that's addressed. That and uh, and it's it's surprising how a lot of bandmates don't think it's going to be an issue. But then when I ask the bandmates, how are we handling ownership of the band name and what happens if you guys break up? 
suddenly all the band members have a very different point of view of that. Right. And so, and they're going to fight and they're going to yell, but better they fight and yell now while they're still poor and early than right. fight later when they have access to powerful lawyers and there's a lot of money at stake. So better to have those arguments at, at, at step one. Dude, my band can't agree on a set list, let alone <laughs> the, the name of a band. All right. That's why we're called the Zach Sloan band. I made it no I made it very clear who was Oh god. Be really funny if your band broke up and like your bassist is like, hey, we're Zach Sloan band. I'm Ted. That would be awesome, actually. Yeah. Doug, I hope you're watching. Please don't do that. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a Doug and not a Ted. I was close. I just went with like the you most were random close, dude, for having no idea. Name, yeah. Close. If it was Ted, that would have been hilarious. All right. Um, great stuff. Love to open with some good, scary, cautionary tales. And um, and just a, a, you know, go back and listen to the Callings music, everybody. It, it'll take you back to a time, and it's, it's, it's still pretty terrific. It holds up, I assure you. All right, we're going to take a quick break. Paul, Arabian Prince and Paul Hershenson from Incubate next. Coming up next on Break the Business. Don't go anywhere. Ryan Carella here. I hope you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you're getting a lot out of it. I do what I do because I care about creators like you. A lot. I've dedicated my career to helping creative professionals, entrepreneurs, and organizations move forward. I do it by hosting this program, and I'm also proud to do it in my legal practice. If you're a creative professional looking for solutions-oriented legal services to help you further your goals, I'd love to help. My firm, RKPA, does contracts, commercial law, copyright, trademark, and more. Visit rkpalaw.com to learn more. That's rkpalaw.com. Ryan A. Corella, PA, Miami, Florida. Streaming services for Break the Business provided by L.E.K. Entertainment. L.E.K. Entertainment is a full-service entertainment company offering everything from consultations to full-scale events and productions, including audio and video productions, voiceovers, staged theatrical productions, script and music development, and streaming services. For more information, visit lekentertainment.com. L.E.K. Entertainment wants to help you bring your story to life. Thanks for supporting Break the Business. If you have a question or topic that you want us to discuss, email us at breakthebusiness at gmail.com. You can follow the host, that's me, on Twitter at Ryan K-A-I-R, and you can follow the show at The BTB Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Twitch, YouTube, and Facebook, and on all major podcast platforms. And now, let's get back to the show. Got a couple Awesome guests coming up here now. They are the co-founders of Incubate Next, a social impact technology incubator that focuses on underserved entrepreneurs and community. We have with us Arabian Prince, the founding member, a founding member of NWA, entrepreneur and technology consultant. We also have Paul Hershenson, who is the co-founder of the software development firm Art and Logic. You can find out more about their work by visiting incubatenext.com. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being on with us this week. Thanks for having us. Oh, this yeah, is, thank you, Ryan. This is a, a thrill among thrills to have you both uh, as a as a fan of music and business entrepreneurship. You're hitting all the marks for Zach and I. This is awesome. Uh, just to in- quickly introduce uh, everybody, to give them the background here. Arabian Prince, you're a founding member of NWA. Paul, you're a software innovator who got started developing music software. 
And so I'm curious about something. What got you two connected? Is it just sort of the shared interest in music that you both have, this shared musical history? I'll let Paul start, and then I'll, I'll follow up after that. <laughs> All right, you want me to take that one? Um, so it's probably a year and a half ago or so now, um, Arabian uh, met our director of marketing uh, for Art and Logic at a uh, music technology conference, and they seemed to hit it off and had lunch together a couple of times. And then uh, Carlos uh, introduced me to Arabian, and we got to know each other and start talking and um found out that we had a lot in common and a lot of uh, shared interests, um, you know, particularly with startups and technology and entrepreneurship and uh, found there were a lot of ways to collaborate on different things and ended up uh, kind of through a circuitous path, uh, ended up starting Incubate Next. So let me let me sum it up in smaller words than COVID hit. <laughs> COVID hit. That's what really, so COVID hit and we were all talking and chatting and sitting around like, man, this is bad. This is real bad. Like, what can we do to help? So we got together and started this small little COVID company, built an app to help small businesses manage their employees. I mean, it's a lot more complicated than that, but we did that for a minute and just started looking at other ways to help. And I'm all about inner city community giving back. Um, you know, I know where I came from growing up in Compton and, you know, becoming a technologist and a musician and artist and all of these things. But I really wanted to give people who didn't have the opportunities that some other people have to do, you know, amazing things. So that's why we started Incubate Next to really go and find people who don't get the opportunities and help them grow their IP, grow their new companies and scale and whatever from music and entertainment to, you know, um, something we're working on right now is um, something called Mood Connect. So, yeah, we're, we're, we're just looking to, to uplift, in a sense. And so that's what it means when you say that you guys are a social impact incubator. I assume that's sort of th- that kind of spirit that you just talked about there, Arabian, is what, what I would say probably separates you from a more traditional startup, startup incubator, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and what I understand is, like, I got lucky. You know, as a young kid, I got lucky, made a song, got on the radio, and then we made more songs and got on the radio and we made more songs and Rock and Roll Hall of Fame way later. But, you know, it, <laughs> it was just like that in that way. Right. One after another. But, but we understand that people need help, you know, especially people in the inner cities and communities, people of color and women and, you know, um, LGBTQ. And there's another one I forget, you know, but we really want to help. And um, I've got an amazing team, you know, Paul and his team. And we've got, I always say, a, AJ's, a, Aja, AJ, and we got Matt. We got a great team of people that, you know, we came together and created Voltron and, and we try to do some amazing things. So do you see this as a, as a nonprofit type venture? Like, is this about just the social mission or are you guys trying to get a return on investments too? Paul? No, we're trying to make money too. We're just trying to make money <laughs> while doing some good in the world at the same time. And that probably yeah. gets to uh, the focus of your incubator. I know that a lot of the stuff that you guys are incubating is uh, emphasizes like physical and mental health and and wellness technology. From what I read, I mean, that, I guess that was sort of intentional. If you're trying to make the world a better place, it's about not just focusing on underserved entrepreneurs and underserved communities, but also technologies and innovations that will have a positive impact? 
Yeah, that's right. And uh, one of our partners, uh, Matt Walk, is a pharmacist and um, has a really deep expertise in health and wellness and uh, FDA uh, regulatory compliance and bringing pharmaceutical products to market. So having him in the mix, uh, you know, gives us kind of that extra dimension to be able to tackle that type of project, which is one reason why it's been a focus for us. I can I can dig that. That's that's really exciting development for me. For so, where is your organization in terms of bringing in new projects? If there are folks out here watching or listening who might think that they have an innovation that you guys would want to sink your teeth into? Are you, are you openly looking for a new cohort? Uh, wh- where are things with that? So we're, we're busy um, working on two projects right now, um, but we would love for people, if they're interested in working with us, we would love for them to contact us now um, so that we can start the conversations and uh, you know, kind of get them in the queue for when we're ready to take on new projects, which should be in a couple of months from now. Yeah. And on top of that, you know, one thing we want to make sure is, you know, we all have friends and family and neighbors who have ideas and they always want to tell you their ideas. And we have to really do the due diligence on what people bring to us. So if they can get it into us early, we can, you know, either break some amazing news to them. It's like, oh, we think this is an amazing idea. We can help you. Or uh, somebody already invented the tire. And yeah, that one's not going to work. Yeah. You know. <laughs> That makes sense. Are you so? What stage of development are you all looking at? If somebody comes to you with just a, a really good idea, is that sufficient? Are you expecting a, a prototype, proof of concept, uh, maybe an existing business? Where are you usually getting companies, and what stage of development? So we're we're focusing on people who are very early in the process. So what we say is, we'll help take you from concept to seed. So if you have an idea, but you haven't had anything else, we're happy to talk with you. Um, we'll probably try to talk you out of it to make sure that the idea is really something <laughs> you care about. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't have to be anything more than an idea. Now, it certainly can be. We've um, you know, we've been speaking with people who have you know already done a fair amount of work, um, but would benefit from the coaching and mentoring that we do. Um so it, you know, if if you're already VC backed, you don't need us. Um, but if you're earlier than that and and trying to raise, you know, your initial seed funding, then that's where we can help. I have a question for each of you about particular aspects of your background that I, I found most intriguing. Paul, I want to start with you on this. You're known as sort of being a big supporter of remote work. I know that uh, you know your your company Art and Logic has you know encouraged that kind of work for a long time and. Obviously, with the pandemic, we've sort of been sort of thrust into a involuntary remote work experiment throughout the country. And I can tell you in my own legal practice, I before the pandemic, I was in an office at least four days a week. And now I'm at home five days a week and I never want to go back. I'm so much better at what I do as an attorney and as a podcaster having everything I need right in my home. And I think a lot of indie creators, because the venues closed during the pandemic, have learned to do their entire creative endeavor from home. Uh, can you reflect a bit on where the country is right now in terms of remote work and and where you see things going from here? Well, it's been a very interesting experience for me. So we started working remotely from the very beginning at Art and & Logic, and that's just about 31 years ago now. Um, back when we started, there was no infrastructure for remote work. Everybody thought we were completely out of our minds. Um, <laughs> try to persuade a bank that they ought to loan you money when you don't have an office. And, um 
that was a challenge. Um, so it's the, the you know the changes have been pretty tremendous. It's been really interesting watching, um, in particular, the larger tech companies in Silicon Valley who have generally been pretty anti-remote work, um, you know, be forced into doing a 180 on their um, on their policies. Um, you know, I I think it's I think it's a wonderful development. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting to see how long-lasting the changes to work in society are. Um, I got to tell you, I feel a little bit like a fraud, though. I am a an advocate of remote work, and uh, I'm thrilled to see everybody <laughs> having an opportunity to do it. But I've never had to work at home with um, teenage children <laughs> and my wife at the same time. <laughs> uh, and, and now maybe I'm rethinking the whole thing, um, except that part, oh, great. fortunately, everybody... Well, Everybody's getting back to work. The kids are, are back on campus two days a week, and next year looks like it's going to be normal. But if it had lasted any longer, I would have found an office as fast as I could this summer. So That's great, Zach. We have one of- you know what? Before you go on, Ryan, I'm going to say something. Just wait for it, because before this is over, that door is going to open. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost did. I, I heard him back there. That's, that's great, Zach. We have one of the most prominent advocates of remote work going back three decades. He comes on the show. He's like, you know, I'm not so sold on it anymore. <laughs> I would get. I would normally give him a hard time, but you know, my day job now. You know, I'm a, I'm a elementary school teacher, and I can understand how hard it is to get other things done when, like, you know, kids are around. So, I, I feel you, man. Yeah, I, if you've been teaching over Zoom for the last year, it's it's been a real challenge. It's yeah, been less than ideal. Zach's definitely one of the real heroes in that regard. Uh, Arabian, I I'd like to ask you a question here. Um, for about five years now, we've been doing Break the Business uh, as a podcast to help empower indie creators. It stems all the way back to a book I wrote in 2015, also called Break the Business, which is all about pointing out as an entertainment lawyer the dangers that exist in the music industry with record deals and management deals and things like that, and how we need to craft a better path for indie creators where they stay independent and they prevent themselves from being exploited. And I'd be remiss if I didn't get some perspective from you on that, Arabian, just from your experience with NWA. And, you know, we all saw straight out of Compton. We know how a lot of that stuff went down. I'm sure it wasn't exactly the way it was portrayed in the movie, but there was plenty that could be read about what you guys went through. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind, could you talk a little bit about uh, just warnings that you could give to the artists out there? What would you tell artists today about getting involved with certain people in the music business and what they could do to protect themselves? Yeah, so like Zach, I'm also a teacher. Um, I teach, well, before COVID, I teach at Point Blank Music Academy. I'm the music business teacher. So I have rehearsed this answer over and over through class and class and class. Let's do it. And yes, so it's one of those things where the the title of your thing is amazing because the first thing I walk in my class and I say is, who in here wants to be famous? And some people raise their hands, some people don't. Then I ask, who in here wants to be successful? Everybody raises their hand. So I said, there's a stark difference between being successful and being famous, right? You can be famous and be broke and not successful and all that. There's so many people out there that are. But to be successful, you have to take music or entertainment and break it down into its fundamental words. Music, business. Entertainment, business. People do the music, they do the entertainment, but they forget about the most important word, it's the business. So I try to get them to flip that in the first few classes. We don't even talk about music. We go into what's a copyright, what's publishing, what's what's your you know writers, what's you know your your society 
Is it ASCAP, BMI, CSAC, all of these things, and explain to them, you can have a hit record and not make any money if you don't take care of all of these things along the way. So I try to teach that to the really, really young, up-and-coming independent artists. And then the other thing I explained to them is, yeah, you can be on a major. I was on a major. We were on a major, and we weren't making any money because we were getting ripped off. And then, two, the calculations when you deal on the major label are really, really flipped. And I say once I went independent, I'm like, okay, on a major, we sell a million records. We may make $100,000 off that million records unless they start recouping even more money, and then, you know, we might owe them. And I says, independently, I can sell 100,000 albums and make a million dollars. Which do you want? You know, what, like, figure it out. Do you want, you want the fame? Okay, fine, go ahead. But don't expect that the money's going to come with that. So, yeah. Wow. I appreciate that perspective, Arabian. That's that's tremendous. Uh, and again, this always happens, Zach, where I, I ask you know folks in the industry who have this experience, their perspective on this, and they wind up encapsulating in 100 words what took me like 15 chapters in my Break the Business book. I mean, guy nailed it. That's That's really terrific. And of course, we're talking to a teacher, right? So of course, he knows how to express that point perfectly and succinctly. And it hurts when somebody takes your money, you know, over and over and you kind of figure it out and like, you know what? That's not going to happen again. <laughs> oh my gosh. Amen. All right. Gentlemen, this has been a real pleasure. We appreciate your being forthright, telling us the real stories. And I've got to tell you, I've really enjoyed learning about Incubate Next as, as somebody you know, who works with nonprofit organizations, who is, who, who is an educator as well. I really admire what you all are doing to support entrepreneurs and underserved communities. I think that's awesome. I really would like to keep that conversation going with you and anything I can do to help you guys doing what you're doing, I think is awesome. In the meantime, love to give that web address out for everybody. Again, that's incubatenext.com and that's incube, I-N-C-U-B, the number eight, next.com. We want to make sure we get that right and uh, bring people over to your terrific platform. Gentlemen, this has been a treat. Before I let you go, I'd like to ask each of you our final question that we ask all the guests that come on this program. We'll start with you, Paul. Do you have any last tips that you can share with the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Never give up. I think the one the one thing that matters the most in when it comes to success is persistence. You're going to fall a whole lot of times, and you're going to get up one more time than you fall and keep on going. I love it. Love it. Arabian Prince, same question. Any last tips to share with the indie creators out there to help them move their careers forward? Yeah, I have three. And the first one's very important, and that is opinions are opinions. Don't let people sway what you do. Now, Zach's over there smiling. I see, right? <laughs> Don't Dude, let I love people it. I love it. sway your creativity with their opinions because what's in your brain may be the greatest thing on planet earth that no one understands Prince, michael jackson <laughs> parliament funkadelic craft work you know what i mean this goes on and on of amazing people you know i i'll tell a really really quick story and hopefully i have time but um i was with some friends some real musicians unlike me and they were telling me about um miles davis and um herbie hancock and it was just this great story where Herbie Hancock was this fresh new musician just working for Miles Davis, and he didn't know that Miles Davis likes messing with people. <laughs> and basically, they practice and practice and practice for a show. Right before the show, Miles walks in and goes, Hey, uh, Herbie, 
everything we uh practice forget about it <laughs> all i want you to do is play the black keys <laughs> and <Herbie's> like, what? <laughs> what do you mean like nah, don't touch the mother keys man just figure it out and play the black keys. <laughs> and he said that's one of the greatest pieces of information he ever got because he had to improvise and figure it out and that's my second thing improvise figure it out you want to be great you got to figure it out you can't be locked in this box of musicianship or okay i went and got singing lessons any singer i've ever worked with i got oh i'm gonna go sing uh-uh don't do it because that's it's no disrespect to singing teachers but if you've got something don't let somebody else ruin it trying to get you to sing like they want you to sing be special be yourself and then the final point is the one i said in the beginning take care of your business and if you don't know ask somebody get an attorney get somebody who does know youtube instagram google figure it out and you'll be amazing one more time at that website everybody you can check out uh, incubate next by going to incube incub the number eight next.com arabian prince paul hershenson thank you so much both of you for joining us this week this has been an absolute treat please don't be a stranger love to keep the conversation going with you thank you thanks ryan oh that was cool <laughs> Dude, <laughs> man, that was I, great. And and Arabian Prince gave us the straight info about you know the experience with uh, with NWA and, and getting their money taken from them. That was awesome. Oh man, dude. just the perspective from both of them. I love it. Oh, there is something spe- like and I I don't know Arabian Prince per- like this is the first time I ever got to speak with him but it's it, i love meeting other artists who I, I feel like kinship with who who do many different things and i i always find that their their brains work in very fascinating ways usually very different than mine but it's always fascinating to hear them talk and so when he had his three his three tips which by the way if you really distill them are all very different but all very equally important yep it was just fun to see how he was working through that to give the that advice to people um, who he's I think he's really trying to help and I just I really appreciate that the two of them together must th- those those team meetings those founders meetings oh, must yeah. be an absolute blast because they're both so brilliant and understand the industry so well and just have the right mindset in terms of their sense of mission I could talk to these guys all day yeah. okay Zach now I feel kind of silly because that was a great interview with two awesome music industry figures but I told myself that if we had some time this week, I was going to play this video clip for you because it's been in my head all day and it's just do it. It's just, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, okay. So you know how sometimes Zach, there are certain YouTube memes or like funny YouTube videos that kind of recycle every six years or so and find their way back into your life via Twitter. And then you get to fall in love with that same funny video all over again. Uh, I just saw that Charlie bit my finger is now an NFT, and so yes, I went back and watched it, and it's still hilarious. Sold for like five hundred thousand, right? Yeah, yeah, man. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Man, we're in the wrong business. Um, so (laughs) yeah, so this happened to me recently when I was in law school. A a bunch of us got obsessed with this 1980 video that just kept recycling itself on YouTube of famed director Orson Welles doing a commercial for the Paul Masson Wine Company, okay? And I, I know the way I pitch it to you, it doesn't sound that interesting, but there's a YouTube what? video going around of Orson Welles. Yes, the Orson Welles of Citizen Kane fame, um, you know, of outtakes of him doing this commercial for Paul Masson Wine. Now, to set this up a little bit, okay, 
It's 1980. You might remember Citizen Kane, Citizen Kane came out like 50 years before that. So this is late in, light, late, late in life Orson Welles. This is Orson Welles just getting whatever paycheck he can. Okay, so uh, Lauren, can you pull up the clip for us here? Uh, so there, <laughs> there he is. What the? There's Orson. Okay. Um, so to set this up for you a little bit, Zach, this, God, this video makes me laugh every time. All right. So Orson Welles, uh, you know, allegedly, uh, as the story goes, showed up to this shoot um, a little drunk and possibly uh, he took a sleeping pill that he didn't expect to kick in when it did. That's the story. Um, and so before I show this clip and just to, just to sort of set the scene, in fact, jo- Zach, do me a favor here. Can you tell the view, you know, tell the listeners for you know, theater of the mind for those who aren't watching this live stream right now, set the scene. Tell us what you see in this picture. So on the far left, we have a cu- uh, presumably a couple dressed like I'm guessing to me, they look like they are dressing. They are people from the 50s dressing what they like. They think people from the 90s would dress like. <laughs> Um, so very, you know, just let's take that what you will. But to the right of them is a dude who looks obviously in the tank (laughs) sitting at a table with a, I can't tell if it's a black suit or tuxedo on. And I can't tell if he is intrigued or about to murder somebody. Yeah. He's staring deep into your soul. And there's a bottle of champagne in between them. And there's like a fancy dinner party, right? So before, before we play the clip of Orson Welles, trying to tell you about this champagne. I'm going to read to you what he's supposed to say at this scene, which is taking place at a fancy dinner party in this commercial. What he's supposed to say is, ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. That's what's on the cue card. So this is take one of Orson Welles attempting that in the condition that I spoke about before. Lauren, play the clip, please. No, it's a, sorry, Kurt. Yeah, really. One or two, take two. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. <laughs> it's fermented in the bottle and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So no, stop right there, stop right there. <laughs> Before I play the next take, because he does two takes on this. So a couple things to draw out here for the, for the viewers and the listeners. Uh, for those who can't see it, the couple that Orson Welles is doing this scene with, we have to agree, Zach, consummate professionals, right? I'm amazed. Like, they don't break character next to a just visibly impaired Orson Welles, who <laughs> you said he's wearing a suit jacket. It might just be like a black blanket that they have around him to keep him warm. That could be. <laughs> like, it's like a moo-moo on him. I'm not sure what's going on. But, like, this, these two other actors in this scene, super professional, not breaking character, just ready to play their character. Like, this is their big break. They finally, you know, they're getting to share a screen with Orson Welles. Orson Welles. <laughs> And Orson Welles is just not here. He's just not having this. He's having all sorts of trouble. You can see in the commercial, he's like squinting to try to read the cue cards. But the the, the funniest part of the commercial is the first three lines where he's supposed to go, ah, the French champagne has been celebrated for its excellence. And it comes out as, ah, the French. (laughs) 
And so there was like a six week stretch when I was in law school. I would pass by my friends in the hallway. We'd just go, oh, the French. And we knew exactly what we were talking about. That was wild. And what was interesting to me is you could tell that the guy, so the guy is holding the bottle of champagne and he's uncorking it, even though it's like pre, whatever. Pre uncorked. But you can tell there's a certain beat, like a word he's supposed to actually uncork it at. And he's like, oh my God, where is the rhythm? I don't know where this is going. And so you can see his hands like start to go and then stop and then go again. And the first thing I noticed actually was the woman, when he starts to speak her for a split second, and you are this is how you know she's a professional because she didn't just lose it. Her eyes went, uh, and she's like, back in. <laughs> you can tell that I swear nobody had spoken to this man before they started rolling. Like they sat him down, actors get okay, we're, we're all blocked in properly. All right, and yeah. go. And then they went, oh my God, what's happening? Yeah, they were just like, all right, look, we got three minutes tops of Orson Welles' lucidity. Get him in the chair. Let's try to get this in the can. We'll try to fix it in post, but if we want him to read this cue card, it is now is the time. Yeah, now or never, baby. Now, Zach, Zach Sloan, what if I told you that as great as that first take was, take two is even more spectacular? I want to see it because from what you're telling me, he's gradually got... He, he is gradually getting more intoxicated, so, so I would like so to please see. The first the thing part. I want you to notice is how he tries to do ah the French champagne right in the beginning. Lauren, go ahead and play. 102, take three. Action, please. Ah, the French champagne has always been celebrated for its excellence. There is a California champagne by Paul Masson, inspired by that same French excellence. It's fermented in the bottle, and like the best French champagne, it's vintage dated. So Paul Masson. <laughs> imagine being the director. Wow. Okay, your your actor is Orson Welles. By any objective measure, like one of the most legendary actors and directors of our time. You know, many people would consider Citizen Kane to be the apex of American cinema. Okay. Right. And you have to direct Orson Welles, which must be not unlike, you know, uh, doing choreography for Gregory Hines. <laughs> There's, you know, it just it, it's hard to even fathom like having to give this person direction. And imagine the courage that it takes to have to cut Orson Welles halfway through and tell him you're not doing a good job here, Orson Welles. I, <laughs> dude. Words escape me. That is, the French. I'm going to watch. I'm going to show that to my wife as soon as we get off. I'm going to be like, baby, check this out. Uh, I, part of me wonders, did they have to change the pronunciation of, the of what is it, Paul Masson? Is it actually supposed to be Mason? And they're like, well, it's Masson now because Orson <laughs> Wells. You're Masson now, Paul. Orson said so. <laughs> We're sorry. Um, uh, the best thing about this video, and I encourage uh, everybody watching and listening to check this out, is – you can also see the final product, you know, the actual commercial that they made out of this. And whatever post-production person worked on this commercial deserves every award that could be possibly bestowed. Because that person took that footage, that raw footage that you saw, and turned it into a passable commercial. And it's it was nothing short of cinematic alchemy. <laughs> Oh, the whole thing's beautiful. Like this is, it, I mean, tell you, like, every six years, this this video finds its way on my Twitter timeline, and I fall in love with it all over again. 
and now that I'm going to be part of that because that was amazing. <laughs> I'm so like glad I got to share that I've with you. To, I've had to edit bad vocal performances together before and like comp together like 30 takes to get a passable vocal performance. I can't imagine adding a visual component to that. That sounds impossible. It was a lot of ADR. They definitely had to like have him re-record it and then try to <laughs> lip sync. I'm serious. You watch this. You watch the final pro commercial. That's totally what they did. <laughs> the French. All right. Our thanks to Paul Hershenson and Arabian Prince. Uh, check out uh, their incubator at incubatenext.com, and that is incube i n c u b the number eight next. Com. My thanks to you, Zach Sloan. This has been an absolute treat, my man. I love doing this show with you. Dude, thank you for having me on, man. That was I, – I can't believe I got to speak to Arabian Prince. Um, that's the highlight of my week. And then also get to see that video, which is somehow also <laughs> – I can't imagine my, the life I live where I get to talk to one of the founding <laughs> members of NWA and watch this video, and they're both on the same list somehow. It's very weird. <laughs> So well put. And thank you all for checking out Break the Business. We will see you next week. Mm-hmm.